Did you know that you can help us produce new seasons of our podcasts and audio series? At Studio Chenta, we just launched a new series of audiobooks based on our podcasts, and they're currently for sale. There are many titles available from romantic comedy to horror, true crime, communication and linguistics, food and lifestyle, migration stories, and much, much more. Available in Spanish, English, Italian, and French. Check out our full catalog at ochentestudio.com slash audiobooks. And find the titles on apps like Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobook app. Thank you so much for supporting our work. Hello, and welcome to How Not to Travel, a podcast about seeing the world differently. It's been a minute since we posted, and that's because travel has changed so much since this pandemic started. So, for the next few weeks, we're going to break down how not to travel, COVID edition. This week, wet markets around the world. Picture this. I'm sitting on the beach with warm, white sand between my toes. I look out to the glittering blue water that I can see straight down to the bottom as I watch the shells move around because there's creatures in them. A boy, not much older than high school age, walks towards me with that signature Caribbean lobster in his hand. He sets the lobster on the grill and paints it with garlic sauce and cooks it with onions and pickles, a spicy Haitian dressing. I devour that lobster with my bare hands. It's still the best meal I've ever had. Whoa! We land in Thailand and the market bustles with energy. There's smells of all kinds, good and bad. There's so many noises from the hawking of the tuk-tuks to people yelling out the prices of whatever they're selling. The hum of Bangkok is so welcoming. I stop at a vendor selling fresh fruit, fruit that I had never seen before, with fuzz and spikes on its red body. I take a bite into the juiciest mango I find, and the sweetness drips down my chin. Here we go driving along the dusty roads of the most fertile country I've ever been in, Sudan. It's like the real Wakanda, you feel me? I swear it's like a scene from the Bible, with men in long white kaftans standing next to their sheep that are grazing on the side of the road. Feeling like Mary and Joseph are about to pop out at any moment, like, baby Jesus, is that you? We pull over and I walk into a glass room. Hanging above my head is a skinned lamb, and in front of me, a Sudanese man yells, Fudala, welcome, as he holds a machete in his bare hand and chops the leg right off with a smile. And I ate that lamb, seeing it go right from his hands to the grill right to a table in front of me. I slept so good that night. I strut down the cobblestone steps of Las Ramblas. Okay, maybe I didn't strut. It was more like a stumble because it was early morning 
and I was still in my club clothes the night before because we never went to sleep. We realized it was time to go home when the sun started coming up and it was six o'clock in the morning. So we stumbled around trying to find food, realizing we hadn't eaten from the night before and we were starving because we spent the entire night dancing. Everything was closed, but a street sweeper pointed us to Mercado de la Boqueria. We walked in and there was fresh fruit and juices, stall after stall after stall. The fishermen were bringing in their catch for the day and throwing it on the ice. The butchers were yelling and cutting up their meats. And I settled on an orange smoothie as I sobered up and bought some fruit to eat on my way back home to my bed, where I might have had to check out in two hours, but listen, sleep awaited me at two hours was good enough for me. Here I was on the other side of steel bars holding a crowd back as cattle walked in. Listen, these were not normal cows, okay? But cattle with huge horns, longer than the length of a car. Their beige skin was something to behold. And I finally understood why Texans wanted their couch to be made out of this material. The cattle drive noisily moved into the slaughterhouse with their bells jingling ding, 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 and hooves thundering straight to their death. It was so beautiful that you almost forgot what was about to happen to them. So beautiful, in fact, that I ate my barbecue ribs right next door without a single thought that I had just seen my food alive minutes before. Did you know that all of these are wet markets? These markets exist all over the world, not just in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, in the Americas. Yes, even in the USA. In China, though, um, wet markets is like an umbrella term for different types of markets. There are some wet markets that only sell slaughter animals and produce. Some sell commonly eaten animals like, um, like chickens and fish. Some only sell fruit and vegetables. Some sell wild animals like that. All of these represent a different level of risk for zoonic diseases. That's Christian an Ecuadorian-American living in New Jersey who is an expert in environmental policy and instability management. He specializes in decolonization theory and alternative and sustainable food systems. He explains that the wet markets, like those previously described, are super important in local food systems. A wet market is basically a farmer's market. A local food system is very important for multiple reasons. They don't require like long hours of transportation. They um, don't create a lot of food waste, which is really important. And they also reduce a lot of food loss. And all of these things happen in industrial agriculture. And it also reduces a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions that are emitted from industrial agriculture because a lot of food systems don't require a lot of the energy intensive or water usage that is used in industrial agriculture. You kind of bring the economy of the food to your local community. You also are building community through community gardens and through um, food co-ops that primarily serve the community, which is the complete opposite that industrial agriculture does. See, it's interesting that you describe food like this because here in the States, when you say community garden or food co-op or ocean agriculture or even farm to table, it sounds so hipster and new age, right? Like someone having the privilege of being ethical about their foods. Yet those sheep farmers in Sudan would never be described this way even though they're being the most ethical about their food, nor would that boy from Haiti literally delivering food from ocean to table. But that's exactly what this is. 
and you can implement it with different parts of the world. A lot of folks have different ways of referring to agroecology. Some call it regenerative agriculture, some call it sustainable agriculture, but at the end, it's agroecology. The term agroecology is used to understand indigenous place-based ancestral agricultural knowledge. We'll link the concept of food sovereignty by La Via Campesina, an international organization that fights for the rights of peasants and farmers and land peoples all over the world in our show notes so you can read more about the concept. They have created a platform that really shows us how we can build a better future for our food systems. And the reason why this term is so um, contested is because of uh, the recent outbreak from COVID-19 is speculated to have started in a wet market in China, in Wuhan. So a wet market is essentially a partially open commercial complex with vending um, stalls organized in rows and narrow tiles where independent vendors primarily sell wet items such as meat, poultry, seafoods, vegetables, and fruits. Um, they often have slippery floors as they're constantly clean, and which is where they get the term wet markets. Clean, which is so opposite of how wet markets are being framed in the media and how people are thinking about them now. Like before COVID, if you Google top 10 places to visit in Barcelona, Mercado de la Bocaria on Las Ramblas is on that list. After COVID, it's still there. A wet market is literally a tourist site. Yet people have a hard time seeing non-Western markets as the same. Like, can you imagine people visiting a wet market in China? They'd be like, oh my God, Chinese wet market, bats, COVID, disease. I mean, ultimately that boils all down to racism. So there's currently a call by a lot of US politicians to ban wet markets in China. The problem with that is that wet markets are essentially a huge part of the culture in China. Now, folks even in China recognize that there's a difference in wet markets. There's a difference in like um, in what kind of produce are sold in each. Um, and actually, a 2019 study of the food retail culture of South China showed that wet markets that sell produce, fish, and um, other commonly eaten livestock are extremely popular. And this stems from their appeal to consumers' desires of fresh food. Now, what does this mean? This means that wet markets actually provide fresh produce for consumers. And why is this important? Because these fresh produce is being produced by local farmers. They're being produced by local food distributors. And they're not being produced in, in a way that's industrialized. Otherwise, they wouldn't be considered fresh. Wet markets and wildlife markets are not the same. So can you explain the difference between wet markets and wildlife markets? Because what we call wildlife is also based on culture, right? You can refer to episode four, Managing Expectations on season one, on the concept of eating dogs and how this is also based on culture and what we define as food. There's the research that shows that apparently COVID-19 started in a wet market. And it's because of the illegal wildlife trade and wildlife farming that is happening in China which is, again, not necessarily the bigger portion of wet markets. Like wildlife markets make like a small, a very, very small portion of the overall um, community of wet markets. Now, if you ban all wet markets, you're also banning farmers markets, which is not really the smartest thing to do, given that it provides so much 
um, income to farmers and so much food to local um, communities. Um, and actually on May 23rd of this year, the director of the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, publicly stated that the first case of COVID-19 did not emerge from the Huanang wet market in Wuhan, and that it's possible, it possibly actually came from industrial agriculture. Which begs my next question, what is industrial agriculture? How is it different from markets? And what are the effects of that? Girl. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Um, well, industrial agriculture or agribusiness are agriculture that's done through an industrialization and using fossil fuels, energy, water to produce and monocultures. To, monocultures are like just like single crops. They're not really like multiple crops. It's just single ones. And monocultures that are actually really, really bad for the environment. So like industrial agriculture and the emissions only from like green, uh, global greenhouse gas emissions, they stem from different sectors. 18% is from deforestation, 15% if it's from the production of the food. Eight to 10% is the processing and packaging. 6% is transportation, 4% is food waste, and 4% is refrigeration and supermarkets energy consumption. In addition to this, all of this food that's generated through the industrial food chain only feeds 30% of the global population. Yes, only 30% of the global population. And they use 70% of all global water. Yes, more water than all the countries in the world. Agribusiness own a lot of locations where they have done land grabs and water grabs. A water grab or a land grab is a swift acquisition of property, often by fraud or force, usually done by governments or private corporations. In fact, land grabs and water grabs are happening in the USA today. For example, did you know that Los Angeles gets its water from indigenous reservations, specifically the Owens Valley Paiute Nation? The U.S. Congress passed Act H.R. 11969 and an executive order by President Roosevelt that allowed the city of Los Angeles, as well as other cities and towns in the state of California, to withdraw the entire Owens River Valley watershed, affecting the three indigenous reservations it runs through. You can hear a Paiute Native perspective in Episode 2, Season 1, Who Gets to Be a Local? Shout out to Tazba. We've also linked a source where you can find out more information on this subject. So go ahead and visit our website. They're mostly farmers that are leaving these areas that have been stolen. That's what land grabs does and land and water grabs do. Um, and agribusiness is known for this because they need arable land and water in order for them to create all the food they do, which again, doesn't feed all of us. 70% of the food that we get comes from actually um, small scale and indigenous farmers. Yes, 80% of our food comes from those folks. We really owe so much to the indigenous peoples of the world. Seriously. And then also like the largest um, driver of emissions is cattle, not just because of the land space that they need to house all this cattle, but also because, so when cows fart, they create methane. And methane is one of the deadliest greenhouse gas emissions. It's actually worse than carbon dioxide. Did you know? If cattle were their own country, they would be the world's third largest greenhouse gas emitter. China first, United States second, cattle country third. That's a lot of methane. And 
this happens so often that we often don't realize that when we eat something from a supermarket or we get like meat from a supermarket, we're not seeing all of the energy and water inputs that were used to make this food. We're only seeing the end product, which has a lot of repercussions and also a lot of repercussions for health because the chemicals that are used in livestock to ensure that they grow faster, they're not healthy for us to consume. But we are not told this information because they know that if we know this information, we're not going to continue and support something as industrial agriculture. A message. Praise Jesus. That was a sermon. Folks that are in the global north don't really see that because we are so used to like getting the food right into our plates. It's so true. We're so detached from food that it's unnatural. If you think about it, we have no idea who grows it, how it's grown, and how it even gets packaged and sold at the grocery store. How many hands does it touch before it gets to yours? And why the hell is it wrapped in plastic? It's something I've thought a lot about since COVID-19 started. I usually don't order takeout specifically for this reason. The amount of plastic waste it creates. But now, I only order takeout and the amount of waste I generate is exponential. Every time I throw a plastic Tupperware into the recycling bin, a part of me dies, especially since my grandma has a lifetime supply of what I call Asian Tupperware, or otherwise known as Cool Whip containers, butter containers, ice cream containers, literally any plastic she gets for free, she keeps and reuses to store food. But if I was to save every single container, I could probably fill an entire wet market. episode was about wet markets around the world and how we see them. On your next trip, whenever or wherever that is, think about the markets that you frequent and know those are wet markets. Before this crisis, they were one of your top 10 destinations as travelers. After this crisis, the world is judging them. And these are the livelihoods of people who literally feed the entire world. So do not forget them. listening. Transcripts are available on our website for the deaf and hard of hearing population as always and sources are linked out within the text if you'd like to further read up on the information that was presented. The host and producer of this podcast was me, Dr. Kiona. Executive producer is Loy Martinez and this is an Ochenta podcast produced by Studio Ochenta. The sound editor on this is Luis Raul Lopez Levi. Art was done by Tiffany Deloon and the music was done by Gabriel Damaso. For the love of travel, this season was completely volunteer. From the editing, to the sound engineers, to the producers, and to the research done in order for this podcast to exist. In addition, our experts volunteered their time to be here. So, our community donations are being accepted at Venmo How Not to Travel, PayPal How Not to Travel at gmail.com, and Patreon How Not to Travel Podcast, and all of our funds will be shared as a community. Thank you so much, and see you next time.